Well, what a gift and a privilege it is to be here with you this morning and to have recently become a member of Faith Bible Church. We have been watching this church, not in a creepy way, but we've been watching this church for a little over a year now uh, as I had the opportunity last November to come to the weekender here and was just so grateful for the grace of God that's so clearly evident in this church body. And so uh, we are just so encouraged and so thankful and so blessed to be able to be a part of the body here and the ministry here. We appreciate you taking us in and so uh, just counting the Lord's blessings to us tremendously as we look forward to, Lord willing, in about a year to be planting a church in the growing area down East Corkscrew of Estero. And so appreciate your prayers for that and uh, this opportunity, as I said, to be here with you today. I want to ask you if you would please to open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2 this morning. As we think about the grace of God extended to us, as we celebrate that grace, I want to turn our attentions to this passage that I think has been so helpful to me personally, and I pray and trust will be helpful to you as well this morning and and throughout your lives. I want to focus this morning on Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, but in order to set up the context so that we can kind of get an idea of what we're dropping into, I want to begin by reading verse 1. So if you would please follow along with me as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Have you ever been driving down the road And you notice that as you're driving and doing your best to keep a straight line, the car keeps pulling in one direction or the other. 
If you're anything like me, you're curious to figure out what's going on, why that is, what do I need to do to to figure out and fix this problem. And so, if you're an experienced driver, kids tune out for a second, you hold the wheel and you just sort of let your hands off of it for a moment, just to see what will happen. It could be that maybe one hand is a little bit heavier that day than the other. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's the operator's problem, right? But you're trying to figure out if it is the operator's problem or if the problem is with the car itself. And so you're driving and you loosen your hands off of the wheel and sure enough, the wheel pulls to one direction or the other direction and you immediately know, okay, there's, there's a problem here that I need to resolve. Thankfully, it's not the the engine's about to explode. It could be just that the tire pressure needs to be balanced, or it could be that the car needs to be put in proper alignment. And you know that if you let that problem go too long, eventually little problems turn into bigger and bigger problems that end up costing you more and more money, right? I want you to understand this morning that the Christian life is something just like that. That the Christian life can become one of an imbalance. That if we're not careful to keep ourselves centered on what God wants us to stay centered on, then just like that car, we can begin to get out of alignment a little bit. And maybe at first it's not such a big deal, but eventually if we let it go too long, we'll find ourselves crashing into perhaps either the ditch of legalism, where we forget entirely about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Or we'll crash into the ditch of antinomianism. The crash into the ditch of just thinking that it really doesn't matter how we live as long as we're in Christ. You just ask Jesus for forgiveness and He'll forgive you and then you just go on doing whatever you want to do. There are times in the Christian life when just like that car, we can find ourselves to be out of alignment. What is it that aligns the Christian life rightly? What is it that keeps us on that that straight and narrow path that the Lord wants us to live? I would say to you that the overwhelming answer to that question, certainly from this passage, but from any passage of the Scriptures which you pick, the answer to that question is that it is the grace of God that keeps you rightly aligned. It is the grace of God that keeps you from veering off onto one side or the other in the Christian life. It's the grace of God which we celebrate so much that if we're not careful, it becomes sort of normal to us. What Paul is doing here in this particular passage is laying out for this group of churches on the island of Crete over which Titus had oversight. He's laying out for these churches, churches who did not have the Scriptures as their background, churches who were entirely Gentile churches, who were coming out of pagan religions, who did not grow up hearing the Scriptures taught to them, had no, had no biblical basis for their way of life, and yet God still saved them. And Paul here in this letter to Titus is concerned with the health of these 
particular local churches because he understands that it's the church that radiates the light of the gospel. It's the church that the gospel resounds from. It's the church that not only proclaims the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but actually lives in light of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A church that doesn't just talk about what God's done, but a church that shows what God has done. That this grace that we talk about is no normal grace, as if there could be such a thing. It's it's a grace that's alive. It's a grace that's powerful. It's a grace that transforms. It's a grace that gets inside of you and works its way into all of the nooks and crannies of our hardened and sinful hearts so that those hearts would stop reflecting who we were outside of Christ and more accurately reflect who we now are in Christ. And so here in Titus chapter 2, essentially what Paul's doing is reminding Titus of something I'm sure he taught Titus, but telling Titus to teach other Christians, other church members on the island of Crete about the transformative grace of God so that they would understand something that I I think that we already understand and yet something that we need to increasingly understand. So that they would understand that Christian culture is unique and distinct and needed in a worldly culture. So that they would understand that when someone is is saved by the grace of God and transformed in light of the grace of God, there is something different and unique and distinct about their lives. So that we may look like the people around us, we may follow the same sort of fashion senses, we may drive the same type of cars, we may not have the, the Old Testament markings of things like not shaving the corners of your beard. Oh, but when you look at a Christian, you see a different creature who's been created new in the image of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's typical way of going about Christian instruction or instruction in sanctification or telling people how to live the Christian life is that he starts with the foundation of the grace of God. He starts by telling you what God has accomplished for you in Christ. And then he goes on to telling you how you are now to live in light of that, in light of God's accomplishments in Christ. But for whatever reason here in Titus chapter 2, what Paul does first is tell Titus what he is to teach the people. In other words, he gives a whole list of commands. And then at the tail end of those commands, he follows them with, for the grace of God has appeared. In the last year or so, I've realized that my Christian life, I think for for longer than I even know, has been out of alignment. I think that I have approached the Christian life, and and perhaps perhaps you could relate to this as well. Perhaps it's it's a sort of distinctly American problem where we, we like to be hard workers. 
But I think that I have thought about my, my sanctification, my growth in Christ, as being up to me a little bit more than it actually is up to me. In, in no way am I saying that I am not supposed to work hard for the glory of God. But I think if I'm honest, as I've, as I've thought about this over the years, I think I have had the approach more so like, Jesus did a good job on the cross in securing my justification. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And yet, I didn't really realize that I thought that I need to somehow try to match that good job that Jesus did on the cross in my sanctification. Can you relate to that? Do you ever get tired in the Christian life and just think to yourself, am I ever going to get it? Well, friend, I've got some good news for you. It's the grace of God that rightly aligns you to the way that God calls you to live. It's the grace of God that gives you the motivation. It's the grace of God that gives you the strength. It's the grace of God that gives you the help. It's the grace of God that carries you through as you do your honest-to-goodness best in living a life for the glory of God and yet falling short of the glory of God. And so as we, as we jump into this passage then, what I want to do this morning is to highlight for us what I think are three aspects of God's grace that rightly align the Christian life. Three aspects of God's grace that rightly align the Christian life. And let's see if maybe we have been out of alignment and if God won't help us to get into alignment this morning. The first of these aspects of the grace of God that rightly align the Christian life is, is really a no-brainer, but I want us to meditate on this. It's first of all, in verse 11, that Jesus has saved us. Jesus has saved us. The first aspect of the grace of God that rightly aligns the Christian life is that Jesus has saved us. You might be thinking to yourself, well, no, duh. Justin, where did you get this guy? <laughs> but isn't that what we will celebrate in about 35 minutes or so in the Lord's Supper? Isn't that the reason we're gathered here together in the very first place? Because Jesus Christ has saved us? Notice what Paul does. Verse 11 begins with a connecting word, the word for. And then it begins to explain why they are to live the ways that he's just told them to live. For the grace of God has appeared. You'll notice I've been talking about the grace of God, right? And then, and then I've told you that the first aspect of the grace of God that rightly aligns the Christian life is that Jesus has saved us. Think, of, think with me for a minute. Can you see grace? Can grace appear? You can see reflections of grace, right? You can see evidences of grace. But you can't see the concept of grace. 
So Paul here is doing something even more profound than just talking about the concept of grace or or talking about the, the thing which flows from the heart of God. Instead, what Paul is doing is saying that the grace of God has appeared. You can see it because the grace of God is fully realized and fully expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, essentially, why is it that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, on and on? Because Jesus has come. Why is it that older women are to be reverent in behavior and not slanderers? Why are they to teach what's good and disciple younger women? Because Jesus has come. Why is it that younger women are to, uh, to be self-controlled and pure and working at home and younger men to be self-controlled and pastors, Titus in this case, to be showing himself as a model of good works? Why are bond servants, those who were the lowest of the low in the Roman Empire, why were they to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? Because God our Savior has come. That's why. And so what Paul's doing is saying the motivation for all of those character traits is the foundational grace of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ. A grace that you can now see. Grace wrapped in human flesh. Grace with hands and feet to do good works. Grace with vocal cords to preach good news. Grace with a body to be beaten and broken for us. Grace that was resurrected from the grave to accomplish redemption that we now enjoy. Jesus has saved us, is what Paul is saying here. For the grace of God has appeared. And what is it that the grace of God has done? He says, bringing salvation for all people. He talks about the entrance of grace. He talks about the effect of grace. What is this grace of God named Jesus? What has it done? What has He accomplished? Paul says bringing salvation for all people. The entrance of the grace of God in Jesus Christ has had the effect that now all can come to God through Jesus Christ to receive this salvation that God offers. And you're familiar with this, the elements of salvation, most likely. We, we talk about sin uh, being saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the, the power of sin, and being saved from the presence of sin. But you'll notice what Paul has just explained to the to Titus in order to tell the Cretans. He's just told them about the character traits which they are to embody, the lives that they are to live in complete contrast to the culture around them on the island of Crete. Lives that you can certainly read about in certain self-help books, but lives that will be distinctly marked by the grace of God. Lives that will be motivated by the grace of God. Lives that will show the world that the grace of God has saved us. 
Is there a is there a particular sin that you're struggling with this morning, Christian? Is there something that you feel like you just can't get rid of? It could be something that you've hidden from everyone else in your life. And you continually ask God to forgive you for it. You know you're not supposed to do it. And yet it holds on. I want to remind you that in your battle against that particular sin or in any other temptations that you will ever face, Jesus has saved you. It might feel as though it won't let go. It might feel as though you can't get over it. But what, is, what was it that this grace of God in Jesus Christ has accomplished? Salvation. The setting free of the captive. And it's not as though the presence of sin does not still wage war against us. It's not as though we don't fight against the flesh. But when we fight that fight, we don't fight it as though we won't win. We fight it from the position of Jesus Christ's victory. This salvation has been brought to us through Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that this salvation extends not just to us, but to all people. This offer of the gift of salvation, this free offer of God in Jesus Christ. This is why we send missionaries out, right? This is why we plant churches. This is why we sing songs about the global extent of the salvation that God offers to us. It's not as though this salvation appeared and now suddenly everyone is saved. But this salvation has appeared and God begins to save people who then tell other people about this salvation so that the way that God saves them is in response to this good news by believing it. I love what the Father says to the Son in Isaiah 49.6. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Father says to the Son, you're overqualified to just save Israel. You're too capable to save one people group. I will make you as a light to every single nation. And so this appearance of the grace of God has brought salvation which extends to all people so that all would be able to come. You might be here this morning and you're perhaps exploring Christianity. Maybe you've heard about Christianity for a long time and, and yet you, you, you wonder if there's something that you're missing. Friend, I want to make it crystal clear to you that this offer of grace, this appearance of grace, is being held out to you right now. That you yourself could be 
free from the penalty of your sin and from the power of your sin and one day ultimately from the presence of your sin. That if you're feeling like you can't ever break loose, that there's, there's something that's just not clicking and you can't quite figure out what life is about or you can't quite figure out how to have the deepest satisfaction that you know you long for, you just can't find. I want to tell you that that can only be found in Jesus. Or if you're a Christian here this morning and you're worn out, Worn out because of that sin that seems to, kill, to still hound you. Worn out because you're just, you're just plain tired. And you know the gospel is good news, but it just sometimes doesn't really feel like good news. Maybe you feel like a hypocrite. Well, friends, I've got good news for you. This grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, including you. And if you're in Christ, then no matter how much you feel beat up, the reality is you're in Christ and He has saved you. So as we think about rightly aligning the Christian life so that we don't veer off to one side or to the other, we must recognize as a foundational principle that Jesus has saved us. But then secondly... As Paul continues to unfold this reality of the saving grace of God, we understand, secondly, that Jesus is training us. Jesus has saved us, and at the same time, in the present moment, Jesus is training us. Notice what Paul does here in verse 12. This grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and Paul says then, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's a past effect of this grace of God, of this saving work of Jesus Christ, in that He has saved us, but then there's an also an ongoing and present reality that Jesus is training us. The grace of God is training us. It was the way that the Greeks used to refer to their process of child-rearing. It was how they thought about making a child grow up into a productive member of society, this word training. And it carries the ideas of teaching, of encouragement, of discipline and correction. It's an all-encompassing word, and Paul really here wants you to picture a classroom with the grace of God in Jesus Christ being at the very front of that classroom and we as Christians seated in the desks taking notes and learning. See, the grace of God, he says, is what is shaping us and transforming us, is what is helping us to grow up into the salvation that Jesus Christ has already secured for us. It's the very same idea that the writer of Hebrews uses when he talks about the way that the Father disciplines his children. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 7. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, 
and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so as Paul personifies the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he wants us to know that it's not just that Jesus has died for your sins, but it's that Jesus has died for your sins, and Jesus in this grace is continually training you to be more and more like him. He gives a negative aspect of this training, and he gives a positive aspect aspect of this training. The negative aspect of this training points really to our conversion, and yet it's an ongoing reality. The grace of God trains us, first of all, to renounce, to put away, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And you'll notice that when he, when he gives you the flip side, the positive training, one of the things that the grace of God trains us to do is to be godly, to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. Paul wants the Cretans to understand that their witness on that island was based upon the way in which the grace of God is evident in their character. You know what ungodliness is. It's a pretty general term, right? It's a term that means to live as if there was no God. It's a term that describes you and me before Christ. We may have had the knowledge of God in some way. Romans 1 says everyone knows about the existence of God, right? But what did we do with that knowledge? We threw it aside. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we, we knew that God was there, and yet we lived as though God was ignoring us or we were ignoring Him, and we just sort of did whatever it was that we wanted to do. Which is why He connects it to worldly passions, right? Desires, cravings that the world goes after. And you put these, these terms together ungodliness and worldly passions, and then you look around you. Because the truth is, these weren't problems on the island of Crete alone, but these are problems that the world faces all the time, right? What do we see in the headlines over and over and over again as we can't seem to figure out what God's design and God's purpose is? We see ungodliness and worldly passion. And so Paul is saying that, that this grace of God motivates us to not fall into those very same patterns, but to renounce them, to say no to them, to put them off. And instead, to do the, the positive, to say yes to, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control, of course, refers to your ability to control yourself which grows when you get older, usually. I mean, my children can have temper tantrums and they don't really know how to control themselves very much. And yet sometimes I have to confess to them, you know what, daddy has temper tantrums too, they just look different. I just know how to clean them up a little bit. I know how to save it till I'm by myself, maybe. Maybe. 
or in the right company to air my grievances with. I want to point out something to you, however. He tells the church how to live, and he begins with the attribute of self-control, with the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. But you'll notice that self-control is not the basis, right? Self-control is a byproduct of what he's just told us in verse 11. Self-control comes when I fix my eyes on the grace of God that has appeared. I don't know if this is, if this is a, a common thing, but it seems like there's a, an uptick in the self-help movement and the focus on self-control. Whether it would be in the ability to control your exercise and your diet or your finances or whatever it is, it seems like the world understands that it's important that you learn to control yourself and to control your desires. But the type of self-control that Paul's talking about here is a different sort of self-control. It's a self-control that says, no to sin, and yes to righteousness, not primarily because it's the better option, but it's a self-control that says no to sin and yes to righteousness primarily because Jesus Christ has paid for my sins. And doesn't that make all the difference in the world? When we try to run on our own self-control as the basic foundation for our Christian growth, that tank's going to hit E real quick. But when instead we confess to God and confess to our brothers and sisters, you know what, I'm having a hard time controlling myself. I've got to go back to the foot of the cross. Take, take a sin that you may struggle with. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's covetousness. I want what other people have that I don't have. Whatever it is, take it. And then compare it next to the most precious and beautiful gift that God has ever given in Jesus Christ. Does it compare in any way? If you struggle with lust and thinking that something that God says is ugly is actually beautiful, you can do your best to just stop that. Maybe to get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone or to put you know, software, accountability software on your phone or your computer or whatever it is. You can do your best to stop that and you'll probably make some progress. But the reality is that root is still planted into your heart, isn't it? But if instead you say, you know what? My flesh has trained me to think that this abomination is beautiful. But the Spirit of God has opened my eyes to the Gospel of Jesus Christ to understand that the most beautiful thing in the world is Jesus Christ. 
and the grace that he's given to me. Because the reality is that the only thing I actually deserve in this life is hell. So when he comes to speaking about the way to live, being, being self-controlled, being upright or righteous, most likely in the way that we deal not just with ourselves, but then with our neighbors as well, loving them the way that God says to love them, and then as he looks upward to say that we are to be godly and the way that we interact with God himself, he wants us to understand that you don't just do those things by themselves, but those things will spring up out of the rich, nourishing soil of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if you take them out of that rich, nourishing soil and try to plant them in anything else, they will die. So in your walk with Jesus Christ, in your battle against your own sin, fight your sin. Control yourself. Live upright. But remember Jesus. This is the way that grace trains us. This is the way that Jesus trains us. We learn to look at Him. We learn to love Him more and more because the antidote to loving anything more than God is more love for God. And the key to loving God is just not to to try to sort of squeeze it up out of you more. But the key to loving God is to see that the grace of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. To be so caught up in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we can't help but look away, but we can't help but look to Him. And we could never look away from Him. And so this grace of God trains us, and it trains us to do these things specifically in the context of this present life, Paul says. A life, an age that he describes as evil in Galatians 1.4. Christians are saved in order to live in this evil, fallen, ungodly age so that the world would know that the grace of God we preach about, the grace of God we speak about, is the same grace of God that transforms. And it's the very same grace of God that not only gives us grace in the past, grace in the present, but also grace for the future. And this is the third aspect then of God's grace that rightly aligns the Christian life. He gives it to us in verses 13 and 14. The third aspect of the grace of God that rightly aligns the Christian life is that Jesus will return for us. Jesus has saved us. Jesus is training us. And Jesus will return for us. You'll notice how Paul can't talk about life as though it's segmented into these neat little categories. Past, present, future. But he merges them all together and he understands that if you are in Christ, then everything about your life is completely secure, past, present, and future. Verse 13 begins waiting for our blessed hope. This is another aspect of the grace of God and another way in which it trains us, but he looks now to the future and a future which affects the present. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He tells us what the goal of our hope is. The goal of our hope is that one day when we will see Jesus face to face, when Jesus will return and this present evil age will be transformed into a glorious age under his righteous rule and reign. When King Jesus takes his throne here and the saints rule with him. So he wants you to think about the past. He wants you to be focused on the present. And in order to be focused on the present, he looks to the future to remind you that Jesus will return for you. But it's not just that we, we think about the future and we say, yeah, that's, that's really great. Jesus is going to come, but I got bills to pay. That's really great. Jesus is going to come, but this country is going down fast. I love that Jesus is going to come. I wish he would do it real soon because it's a hot mess down here. He points us to the return of Jesus Christ so that we would understand that the future is secure, the past is secure, and both of those things bracket the present. I don't know how often you think about this, but the people of God in both the Old and New Testaments have always been a waiting people. I don't know about you, but I find it a challenge to wait sometimes. When you go to the store and you're ready to check out, which line do you look for? The one with the most people so that you have to wait longer? Or the one with the least amount of people? Obviously, right? The line with the least amount of people. I got stuff to do. Clock's ticking. But what the grace of God that will come to us one day at the appearing of Jesus Christ, what it does for us now is it calms us down, it slows us down, it gives us the ability to sort of rise up out of our circumstances and to see the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world and to wait. This is exactly what God said to his people in captivity in Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 27 to 31, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, the grace of God enables us to wait for Jesus. I don't know if you realized it, but patience and waiting is not passive. 
It takes action to be patient. It takes action to wait. And so God says, your future is secure. My Son will come for you. Now wait and work. You'll notice that Paul has highlighted the incarnation of Jesus, his first appearing. He's highlighted the return of Jesus here in verse 13, his second appearing. And then, in case you're wondering if Jesus really really will return, he highlights in verse 14 for you the guarantee of our hope. Not just the goal of our hope in verse 13, but the guarantee of our hope. How do we know that Jesus will return? It's this very same one, he says in verse 14, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, our future is secure because it's rooted in the past, but it's not rooted in the past that we have done. It's rooted in the past that the great God and Savior Jesus Christ has already accomplished. How do we know He's coming back? Because He came the first time. That's how. How do we know He's coming back? Because He redeemed us from all lawlessness. That's how. How do we know he's coming back? Because he purified for himself a people who are zealous for good works. That's how. Now, this text talks about all kinds of language, has all kinds of language about being redeemed from all lawlessness, being purified to be a people for his own possession. But I don't know if you have noticed yet, there is not one single command in these verses. Paul would tell you, be a person of, who's been purified from lawlessness. Don't be unlawless. He would tell you that. And in fact, that's what he has told them in verses 1 to 10. But what he now says is that you are a people who have been purified from all lawlessness. You are a people who have been made to be His own possession in purity so that you would be zealous for good works. You may wrestle with the flesh and you may wrestle with your sin, but according to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, then there is not an ounce of sin that you have not been freed from by the grace of God. That doesn't mean it's easy. That's why we wrestle. That's why we fight. But the reality is Jesus Christ has redeemed His people from all lawlessness. So Paul is again exemplifying, highlighting for us what it is to belong to Jesus Christ. And it's in light of this good work, the good work that Jesus Christ has done, that we then respond to Him in good works. The good work of Jesus Christ creates in us a certain type of zeal, Paul says. A a fanatical commitment to something, Paul says. Because Jesus Christ has purified for Himself a people for His own possession, those people are now zealous for good works. 
Those people live and die for Jesus Christ. And Paul summarizes that by calling it good works. These good works are motivated by this grace of God. The the past is secure in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The future is certain in the return of Jesus Christ. And the present is marked by a zeal for good works. This is what the grace of God does for us in Jesus Christ. We are no longer a people under the control of sin. We are no longer a people defiled by the filth of sin. But instead, in Christ, we are a people who have been freed, who have been purified, who are now set and marked off from the rest of the world as not just a people, but God's people. A people who are zealous for good works. Motivated then by the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. So whenever you find yourself out of alignment. Either you begin to see the commands of God as optional to you and you just sort of think about the grace of God as cheap. Remember what it took to purchase your redemption. Or on the other hand, if you see the commandments of God as burdensome rather than the light yoke that Jesus says He offers to you freely, then remember, my friend, it's not, it's not you that secures your redemption. It's not you that stays in your redemption. It's Jesus Christ that secures your redemption. It's Jesus Christ that will keep every single one that the Father has given to Him because He purchased them to be His own people. This grace has a name, and His name is Jesus. Jesus has saved us. Jesus is training us. And Jesus will return one day for us. And that, my friends, is the straight line upon which we must stay aligned. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray for Your help to do that very thing. To stay aligned on the straight line of Your grace. We confess, Lord, that we fail to do that so often. Whether it would be because we think too lightly of Your sacrifice or we think too much of ourselves, We confess, Lord, that we need Your grace to align us. We need Your grace to fix us. We need Your grace to motivate us. And we need Your grace to transform us. We rejoice to know, Lord, that when we ask You by Your grace to change us, it's not an empty request, but it's the very thing for which You came to do. And so, Lord, we would simply ask You to do that which You came to do. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.